Welcome to Activation Energy by the Chemical Angel Network. I'm your host, Selma Duhovich. In this episode, I invited Aaron Santos to be my co-host. We interview Mark Rika, one of the co-founders of the Chemical Angel Network. Mark has a PhD in analytical chemistry from the University of Texas at Austin. He specializes in medical devices and diagnostics and has held positions at multiple organizations, including Pepex Biomedical, Bayer, and Theracense. My co-host, Aaron Santos, is a physicist and co-founder of DNP123, a company that is making nanotechnology accessible and affordable. He has a bachelor's from MIT and a PhD from Boston University. Aaron is a passionate science communicator and has authored several books, including Ballparking, Practical Math for Impractical Sports Questions, and was the recipient of the Wolfram Innovator Award. Thanks for coming on the show, Mark. And Aaron, welcome. I'm excited that you're co-hosting this with me. You're welcome. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Let's start with the definition of deep tech and the type of ventures that fall under that umbrella. Sure. Deep tech is kind of a, a fuzzy word that people come up kind of with their own definitions for. For chemical angels, uh, Deep tech really refers to the three M's, materials, measurement, and manufacturing. So technologies that fall within that space. We also are quite liberal uh, in our definition of materials, measurement, and manufacturing. We'll even throw in medical device and diagnostics. On the measurement side, we'll get in into IVDs. And on the material side, you know, we'll get into medical devices. You know, with a little distinction there, something like a stent, we wouldn't do a, a new stent, but we would do a bioabsorbable stent. So something where there's a material component to that uh, value proposition. Right. So investment into what is broadly defined as deep tech ventures has really ballooned in the last few years. What do you think are the factors fueling and driving that? Yeah, I really think it's it's being driven right now by ESG mandates and a renewed focus on uh, environmental aspects. So about 10, 15 years ago, there was a cycle that, that really did focus on, on sustainability and uh, clean energy, green energy. It kind of went through an investment cycle. A lot of the companies in the space uh, didn't do that that well. They underperformed. But it's really kicked off again in the last you know three years. I think the Dollars going into clean tech, green tech, uh, VC-backed organizations. There, there's over a hundred billion dollars now of dry powder dedicated to this space, and you know that's trickling all the way through the the startup ecosystem, from academic research all the way through to larger enterprises that are you know getting their Series B, Series C funding. What would you say are some misconceptions about investing in deep tech? One of the, the big myths is, is really around what's driving. You know, there's, there's the idea that in the hard tech, the deep science companies, that it's, it's a technology push. But you really have to go back to your um, market fundamentals and you need a market pull for your product. You need that customer pull. You're not going to push a technology in and of itself out there. And don't forget your basic business fundamentals. You need a, a market and a customer demand. You need to be serving a need. The, the deep tech uh, is just serving that need 
through a very technology intensive approach. Now I'm wondering what you see as the biggest challenge when it comes to investing in this space. The challenge is you basically capture all of the existing challenges with with market risk and financing risk. But when you get into the deep tech, you you layer on an element of technology risk. So does the underlying approach actually work? And so when you start adding another layer of, of risk on, it makes it for a very challenging investment. And how does one mitigate those risks? The best way to mitigate some of those technology risks are to have SMEs involved in that due diligence process. So subject matter experts, people who understand the underlying technology to be able to fully vet it and evaluate it. And, you know, there's also going to be a, a point within it that is like, look, we don't know. This is part of the development to actually answer this fundamental question. And depending on how challenging that fundamental question is, that's part of the risk calculation. Can you talk about the ecosystem that exists to support deep tech ventures? Um, what type of players are able to effectively influence the landscape and catalyze progress? Also, it would be great to hear um, which ones you think are missing or which ones you would like to see participate more intimately. Well, with, with any uh, uh, ecosystem, you kind of have the the entrepreneurs, you have the source of technology in, in terms of the academic organizations, and then you move into to the angel networks, the, the VCs, the corporate VCs, and then there's a lot of supporting groups. There's the incubators, the accelerators, the LDCs, the local development companies, whether it's a, a state organization or a city organization. All of these pieces can really help create a, a robust ecosystem. And, you know, that, those robust ecosystems kind of build on success. They're really essential for, for creating a sustainable process where it's not just a, a single one-hit company that may come through an area, but you can start creating a pipeline where, yeah, there's going to be lots of failures, but there's going to be a sufficient number of successes to keep that core there where you get more entrepreneurs feeding into the system, uh, more technologies feeding into the area and the ability to support those along the way. In terms of, you know, for hard tech, I think a core around physical capabilities, you know, whether it's wet lab space or wet lab incubator space or pilot manufacturing, some of those capabilities can really help leverage an ecosystem. So I want to take a deeper dive onto one of the stakeholders you mentioned, uh, specifically entrepreneurially oriented academics. So academia is a great place to focus on pure science that doesn't have an immediate application. But if you're in a startup, you need to be laser focused on bringing a working product to market. But there seems to be this gap between the sort of mid-level projects that could do a lot of public good by turning something that's only proof of principle at the moment uh, and turning that into a more scalable platform. But that type of work is unappealing for academics because it doesn't really generate groundbreaking research that you would be able to use to advance your career. But it's also not really workable for startups because it involves way too much refinement and uh, needling to really be commercially viable very quickly. So from an innovation standpoint, what mechanisms would you recommend for projects that fall into that middle category? Yeah, I think that middle category is, is the bread and butter 
of the existing large industry players. So it's these, these are the projects that internally that the shells and the DuPonts and the DAOs would be taking on to make that incremental improvement, to extract the three, four, five percent efficiency out of a process where, you know, in scale, that three, four, five percent becomes uh, really a, a commercial success. So it's, you know, the, the early stage, seed stage type companies, you want them to go after these big revolutionary problems, stuff that that is going to change the world, but that is challenging for for operating within a, a large existing ecosystem. And that does align with the, the academic research, I think, as well. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit and uh, change the focus to you specifically. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. But what are you most passionate about? I, I think I'm, I'm most passionate about seeing new technologies come into play that address important use cases. You know, Selma, I think we had a discussion, oh, I don't know, five, six years ago around uh, the, the Nobel laureate out of, of Rice, uh, Smalley. He uh, uh, was very vocal in what sort of things scientists should be looking at. And he identified these 10 kind of drivers for the continuation of our species. And they were things like energy and water, you know, some of these, these, these big problems of food, food scarcity that we need to come up with solutions for, for all of us, and to, to focus on those areas. I like to see technologies that start addressing some of these big problems in, in a bulk or in a large fashion. That's, that's what really excites me. To be quite honest, you know, part of the reason that I do angel investing is I, I've been involved in, in several startup companies. One of them, Therasense, it was to create uh, in vitro diagnostics for diabetics to help them manage their disease. And, you know, it was, it was very successful. Uh, about a million to two million diabetics a day still use the, the fundamental product we developed. And then, you know, went on and did some software, some enterprise systems for moving natural gas, making the, the market for moving natural gas more efficient. You know, about 15% of the U.S. natural gas market is run on our system, and total about $100, $120 million in software installs. So that's, that's rewarding. But the leverage you get from uh, helping to seed, helping to start companies you really get a multiplying effect. Because if, if I'm just doing a single company and involved in the founding team, that's one activity. In the past 10 years, I've been able to, to participate in over 40 companies now in terms of providing some seed funding, some, some seed investment. And I think that's a way to, to really leverage impact. So you, you talked a bit about your uh, experience in, in startup networks. What advice would you give to others who are looking to start a, a chemistry-focused business? I'm a huge believer in use case. Look at, you know, if it's in the medical space, look at a patient condition, a disease state. How is that managed? And then where can you come in to, to provide benefit to the patient, either in terms of better health outcomes, cheaper care, more efficient care, where you can keep them out of, out of the hospital? That, that same use case approach, though, really can be applied to uh, industries outside of the healthcare space. And it's really then more focused on that. What's the need? You know, 
for the medical space, it's patient need. But if you're looking, you know, in the battery space, what are some of the needs? You know, is it more efficient manufacturing? Is it sourcing raw materials? What are the things, the bottlenecks that, that need to be addressed? And I think by addressing that need, you're going to inevitably have customers for your product and a way to, to sell it and monetize it. So you co-founded Chemical Angel Network in 2013. What was the, the motivation behind that? Was there some need for a chemistry focus that wasn't being satisfied by the other angel networks or was there, there some other reason behind it? Yeah, the, uh, the founding story of Chemical Angels, myself and Sid White were in the American Chemical Society Patent and Related Matters Committee. And somebody from American Chemical Society corporate came in and described all of the entrepreneurial activities the society was supporting and involved with. So for those who don't know the American Chemical Society, it's the largest professional society in the U.S., has about 150,000 members, and it has uh, a real revenue source in terms of their, their databases and their subscription portfolio. So they, they have about a half billion dollars a year in revenue, but it's a nonprofit, so that money needs to get reinvested into member services. So these entrepreneurial activities were part of those member services, some great programming, you know, some Kaufman training. It was really to get scientists, engineers familiar with the language and able to, to communicate with, you know, investors outside of the direct science sphere. Well, the training was really great, and, and Sid and I were, were quite impressed with what they were doing. And we asked the question of, well, is the society going to invest in these, these budding entrepreneurs? We, we kind of knew the answer ahead of time. It was going to be no. And I was working for a VC at the time. Sid was involved in his local angel network. And so we decided, hey, why don't we start an angel network to invest in these newly trained entrepreneurs? And so that was the the origin of Chemical Angels. And it, it's one of the first organizations or angel networks that had a sector focus. Since CAN's founding, there's been a couple other sector-focused angel groups like Life Science Angels. And there, there had been previous angel networks or still existing, Golden Seeds, which has a focus on women in the C-suite and some of those uh, additional types of focus. But they really haven't, even to this date, uh, extended that footprint all that much. So we, we remain the only chemistry-focused angel network. Can you can you say more about the network's um, mission and its investment philosophy? And if possible, could you maybe use one or two companies as examples of what you invest in and, and why? Well, you know, our, our mission is really to support the chemical economy. And there's really three elements to a successful angel network. It's entrepreneurs bringing companies to the network. So it's that, that deal flow. The second aspect to it is investors. People are willing to open their wallets and, and put money into these, these new companies. And the third is a framework for efficiently triaging the companies and executing the investment. And you know those are our kind of three legs of the stool for, for angel investing. You know, in terms of companies that we have invested in, maybe to give you an idea of, of how the process goes, you know, we, we operate virtually. We run on a monthly cycle that involves 
basically four meetings a month. Anybody who applies to a, to the network gets invited to an office hours. Office hours is a five-minute, very quick introduction of the company. Uh, it's a very efficient way to triage companies. Either, yes, there's enough interest to proceed or or to move them out of the queue. That's followed by a meeting to identify which companies we really want to have a formal pitch from. We have a third meeting of the formal pitch. And then the fourth meeting of the month is a, is a due diligence call to clarify where we are with, with each of the companies. That can be done as quickly as month and a half to two months to, to get a company all the way through the queue. That's the ideal situation. However, most companies, especially at the angel stage, at this early stage, have a lot of challenges. And one of the companies that uh, we invested in very early on, Chemical Angels, or at least we were introduced to, was a company called Advana. Uh, we really liked the, the entrepreneur. We liked the technology. We liked what they were doing. This was making nanoparticles of silica, by using a grinding method, a little bit more than that, but it's basically a physical method of, of making the nanoparticles. And we felt that it was a much more efficient means of creating the, the silica additives for batteries than the current approach. And you know, the entrepreneur had a, an ask, a raise, what they were trying to do, what they were gonna spend the money on. There was a, a lead investor on it and uh, we came on board and said, yes, we're in. We, we think this is a very capital efficient model. Unfortunately, that deal fell apart. The lead investor added some additional terms. The deal fell apart. The company changed their focus a little bit. They pivoted towards a much larger round, a little bit more ambitious, which you know is good. But that, that larger round meant that the early investors weren't going to be as well compensated. Also, we didn't think that that large block of money was necessary for answering the fundamental questions around whether or not this approach really worked. So it got a little bit too rich. We said, ah, we're not, not interested at this time. But we, we kept in touch. And over the course of, oh, it's probably two years, the company pivoted back to that original business model. And they did that. They got the lead investor. We were back in, and after a fairly extensive two two year cycle, we closed our investment. That company now is I don't know thirty forty people. Uh, it's it's a Louisiana based company. I believe they just closed or are closing a fairly extensive round at uh, I think close to a hundred million dollar valuation. So it's been exciting to see how they've grown over time. So that, that kind of leads into the next question, which is, if you look at the standard quantitative indicators that investors use, things like traction and revenue, those tend to be absent for a long time, many years in, in some cases. How do you evaluate the value of deep tech startups? I mean, what, are, what, are, what would you say are the top three things that you look for in a successful startup? These early startups, one, you're betting on the team. Right. You, you want to be able to trust the person you're working with, trust the person who you're you're giving your your check to, that they're going to use the, the money efficiently. Two, do they have access to, to resources? You know, do they have access to that scale up environment where maybe it's a, a pilot facility? Do do they have a, an in with, a, say, a Xerox for for doing some piloting? work? And then, you know, do they have market visibility? That's probably one of the biggest challenges for for some of these startups to 
to really understand where they would fit in a, a fairly extensive supply chain, but that probably goes through two, three suppliers as a control point. You know, can they actually penetrate that that supply chain? I, I think that becomes a, a really big big challenge for these startups because they just don't have that visibility. And as investors, it's it's challenging for us as well. We don't necessarily have that that ability. Um, one of the unique things, though, about Chemical Angels is is we have been able to to partner with several of the larger corporate venture groups and. One of the best things about partnering with some of the corporate venture groups is it gives us some of that market visibility that that other groups uh, struggle with, and you know the companies we invest in also struggle with. So let's say you have a a new startup that approaches you. It's got a great leadership team. It seems to have really good resources, and the business plan they put together shows that they have some visibility into the market, and they're they're satisfying some niche. With all that, what are some of the obstacles that you see deep tech startups struggling with? What are what are some of the frequent problems that that arise? I think one of the, the biggest ones is is timing. Being there with a solution that the market is ready for. I've I've seen instances where products have come too early and have missed the mark being too early. Likewise, they've been uh, solutions that have come too late where the market may have moved on with an alternative approach and you're solving the problem from a decade. So timing is really huge. I'll bring up the ESG kind of looping back to where we we started. You know, if, if you were pitching an, uh, an environmental play six years ago, you would have been at the trough in the cycle and you would have had a very rough go of it. Today, if you have an, a battery efficiency play or a grid stability play, you can probably get the company funded at a very nice valuation. So there is that timing aspect that, that is, is a bit of luck. And then, you know, the other thing, just bringing luck into it, I, I would rather be lucky than good. And sometimes there's, there's these externalities that you don't control, but looking back on it may have been very fortunate. You know, I, I look at at Theracense, you know, the company was very successful, but early on in the process, there was a pitch to a, a corporate that was total failure, you know, demoed the product. It didn't work. It, it just bombed. That was probably a very fortunate failure because the company that it was demoed to actually had a reputation of, yeah, we'll partner with you. We'll, we'll, we'll take this in house. You know, we'll give you some modicum amount of money, but not necessarily to progress it to a product. In fact, I've seen uh, that company buy out a company and then the founders of that company a couple of years later buy it back for a fraction of what they uh, originally sold it for. You know, if, if that demo had been successful, I don't think Therosense would have actually existed or had a product come out the door. So th there's an aspect of, of luck to these. Where do you see... Chemical Angel Network in five to seven years? Chemical Angels is really going through a transition right now. You know, for the first decade of, of operation, it was a LLC run out of Texas. And as, as one person recently put it, was kind of the, the mark show and probably did a lot of the heavy lifting. You know, Selma, you've, you've been great and, and helped out with, with a lot of it as well, but it really didn't have a, a diverse base. 
Earlier this year, we transitioned into a, a new company structure. We are applying for nonprofit status. We've put together a board of directors and we're really building out the base of support for the company so that it becomes much more of a, a sustaining organization. So whether or not I'm, I'm involved with Chemical Angels going forward, it will have the base, the structure to continue on its own. And hopefully with a stronger foundation that's cast more widely, the, the organization will, will actually accelerate and uh, be able to do more things in the next couple of years. So the, the last question we have for you is kind of a goofy one, but it's it's one that I like to ask specifically because I think it gives good insight into where people think the, the big problems in the chemistry space are. Uh, suppose you had a nanobot. You could hire the nanobot to do any job for you. What would the job be and, and why? Well, this is this is kind of facetious, but I would say a nanobot to do public speaking. I hate speaking in public. I'm a complete introvert, and so chemical angels and having to 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 be in front of people and uh, coordinate a lot of these activities has been been my worst nightmare. So a, a nanobot to to take care of the public face would would be uh, would be my preference. This is a surprising revelation. I did not think you were introverted at all. Total total introvert. Yes. Well, thank you all the more for participating in this episode and for sharing your insight. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for, for having me.